It's coffee time with Professor Terrence Coffee. Hi, everyone. Welcome to It's Coffee Time on Spotify with Professor Coffee, where we talk power, politics, and the criminal justice system. Uh, we are now in our second season. Uh, and we want to thank you for your, uh, being our supporters of this growing audience and the work that we're doing here uh, at Spotify on its coffee time to educate, empower, and uplift our communities. Um, if you've seen our recent posts, as you know, uh, we're going to be hosting our February 26th Social Justice Network event uh, for Black History Month that will be held at the Exodus uh, Tillery Hotel in beautiful downtown Brooklyn. Uh, we are looking forward uh, to bringing together over uh, 30 community organizations here in New York that are working to effectuate change in the lives of those individuals impacted by uh, social and criminal justice uh, issues. Um, so on that broadcast, we're going to be in that event, I should say, we're going to be really highlighting those organizations. And also, this will be the launch of the Social Justice Network broadcast, which you can also find this recording that air on Thursday. So we just want to kind of make you aware. Uh, and secondly, as most of you know, I'll be leading a reading and discussion uh, six part series uh, in conjunction with Humanities of New York, uh, along with New York University. So it's that uh, information and everything uh, kind of comes out. We'll definitely keep you attuned and abreast of what's happening. Uh, again, we want to thank you so much for joining us in our second season. And I, you know, I think on one of our coffee breaks we shared uh, a few weeks ago that um, we were going to be inviting uh, a dear friend, husband, community leader, and attorney to join with us on his candidacy for the assembly of the 68th district. And, and, and as you know, he is truly a man of his word. He is truly a man of the community. And I'd like to introduce to you now, our guest today on It's Coffee Time on Spotify, Wilfredo Lopez. Wilfredo, how you doing, man? I'm doing great, Terrence. Uh, really, thank you for inviting me. Uh, you're someone who I've looked up to uh, since the day I met you, and I am deeply honored uh, to be part of uh, this amazing uh, work that you're doing and hopefully share some of my views and, you know, get into a good discussion with you. Absolutely. Absolutely. We want to send out uh, love to you uh, and your family. Uh, you know, we're in the midst of uh, still the ongoing crisis with uh, COVID-19. Uh, so we're, we're really trying to focus in on that. And also, I think I should say to the audience, uh, Wilfredo, uh, for everyone, that at each of these events, we will still be practicing uh, COVID protocols to ensure the safety of everyone uh, that's involved. Uh, so, you know, I, I think that before we go any further, uh, Wilfredo, we, I do know that you recently participated in a, uh, one of the runoff elections for the 68th district uh and you know through a lot of research on my part and uh, following up some of the things there was some complexity surrounding that uh, uh special elections and you know after we learned of it here on uh it's coffee time i think it was critically important for us to really uh try to unpack what that meant because i think even on your campaign trail you began to identify this as a silent election that was taking place. And I think this is more twofold for me in, in first having you uh, share with our audience what that part meant. But also, um, in light of that, I think we want to also kind of unpack what brought you into this space, beautiful life. Politics can be a crazy game. However, your, your uh, connection your passion and your love for these communities, uh, particularly in the state, 68th district, caused you to throw your, your hat in the political arena. What, what brought you to that space to, to begin to represent this community? Yeah, no, thank you for that. So I've been working in government for better, you know, better part of the last decade. Um, and I myself come from an under-resourced community. So a lot of the struggles that I came to see in communities like East Harlem, Central Harlem, 
um, and even parts of the South Bronx that, you know, we worked in um, resonated with what I was used to. Uh, so in working, you know, with uh, both the city council and other nonprofits, we started to see that there are obvious kind of breaks in the system that allow and continue to perpetuate the same cycles uh, that lead to the results that we're seeing. You know, the, when, you, when you're talking about just basic city services, basic state services like sanitation, healthcare, um, and the, the pipeline that unfortunately leads to people entering the criminal legal system, those are all failures of representation and failures of government being able to do their job. Um, you know, you know better than I, and I will never ever, you know, you know, claim to know more about this than you, but the communities that tend to be the safest tend to have the, the most resources. Exactly. Um, and communities like East Harlem and Central Harlem have traditionally and purposely been under-resourced. Um, and, and there's really little being done. You know, people are obviously advocating, and I'm not gonna say that, you know, I am the the, the great hope of, of this district. I'm just one, you know, resident who is speaking for um, everyone else who's working in order to change this. And it's really a, uh, it has to be a grassroots bottom-up solution. Too often we focus on the grass tops and a lot of that doesn't filter down. So in, in throwing my name in, in, in the, the political arena, as you said, you know, it's really just, I am tired of things the way they are. I am, you know, tired of a lot of the political apathy that exists. Um, and I want to, you know, allow more people to be part of the, the conversation, more people to express their concerns because Everyone cares. It's just, are those voices being, you know, brought into the right spaces in order to share, um, you know, what they feel they need in terms of solutions? You know, everyone I, knows what they need. We just need to get those voices out. Voices out there, and I think that that's really, really was one of the focal points for us, particularly in this silent this election that took place, and you noted it. I think that there were, in, in that uh, uh, vote, voting campaign, a voting block that took place, I think 280 people from that entire community uh, participated in that. And to our understanding and our uh, networks with the uh, members out there in that district, what we determined and it kind of came up with that a lot of the people in the communities did not even know about this election how do, is that one of those points where you're talking about a marginalized community that's historically oppressed and not being able to be engaged in those spaces yeah absolutely so when we're talking about the recent special election we have to talk about like two different components of it the first one was the democratic county committee process mm -hmm. um and that was enacted because the former assembly member robert rodriguez uh took a you know took the position of secretary of state leaving a vacancy so the the way the the democratic uh, manhattan democratic county works is in those situations they have a convention and then committee members who live in the affected district get to choose who the democratic nominee is who's going to get the ballot you know the the slot on the ballot now on the 68th district there's about 270 people who are members of the county committee. And the first component is we need to get more people engaged in the county committee process because the way that those people are chosen now, some people run and do the, the you know their campaign every two years, but most of the people there are appointed by district leaders. Um, and then you have to ask yourself, who are they beholden to? If your political power is in the hands of someone else's you know decisions, who are you beholden to? Wow. So in that committee process, you know, out of 276 people, less than 100 showed up. It was held on a Saturday morning with less than 10 days notice. Um, and it was going to be a difficult uh, situation for anybody who wasn't, you know, connected to really do well. Um, so that led to one, you know, that, that was the first example. And then the second one was the actual special election. And as you noted, in 10 days of early voting, 
only about 280 or so people voted in a district that has 130,000 or so residents and 80,000 registered Democrats. That is a paltry turnout. And the number one reason people gave for not voting, they didn't know. There was no, very little outreach. Um, there were absolutely no, uh, you know, civic engagement uh, exercises being, being done. Um, at the end of the election, only 1,100 people ended up voting. Um, and I mounted a two-day write-in campaign where I just walked around with my, you know, with my team and we just talked to people on the street. Mm. And we ended up, you know, being able to get about 10% of the vote um, in just two days of campaigning, just talking to people, telling them, do you know that there's a silent election? Do you know that you're being kept out of the, you know, the process? Um, and you'd be surprised. I was you... taken by the community as they began to hear the hear, hear this. I mean, how, I, I'm just trying to imagine what yeah. it looks like to know that I have a, uh, there's an election that's going on that's in, in representation of the, the district or the community in which I live, and I have no clue. So what was that like uh, for you and your team? Yeah, I mean, the number one thing people were like, are you serious? Uh, I, I didn't know that there was anything going on. Who's, you know, who's on the ballot? Who's this? Who's that? So we were doing civic engagement and, you know, voter education on the street. Um, in, in several circumstances, we literally pulled out our phones, looked up where the polling position, you know, polling place was, and then, you know, walked them to it if they, if they needed, you know, us to show them or, you know, gave them, you know, directions to where to go. Um, a lot of people were upset because they didn't know. They, you know, they either, you know, they had heard something about it, but really weren't sure. They thought that the elections were happening in September, even though we've switched it to June, you know, this is gonna be the second cycle in June. So there's just um, a, a lot of misinformation. And I have to think that a lot of that is purposeful um, because when you limit the electorate, you can consolidate power. Um, and, you know, that is a, a type of voter suppression that unfortunately exists and it exists in every community. You know, when we hear voter suppression, we typically think about what's happening federally, but the most important elections happen at the local level. And if people don't know, they don't vote. Do you and that's that endemic of, of this district. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, you know, and in line with what you said, you, you particularly just said, as you know, uh, the, John, the John Lewis uh, Voting Rights Act was was just it just failed in Congress. They're going to mm -hmm. try to come back and, uh, and and begin to address some of these issues. Uh, do you think that the practice of or the the philosophy, particularly from the GOP and uh, some of those on the right, in regards to voters' rights, engaging uh, minority communities, do you think that sometimes some of this trickles down? Uh, at the state and local levels where the practice of marginalizing the very communities that we're trying to empower uh, uh, begins taking effect. And, I, and I'm trying to make that correlation for myself. Is that a, a practice? How, how do you see that? Yeah, um, we, we see a, a lot of uh, the same practices that are used. Um, you know, when we, you know, when we study what happened in the Jim Crow South, in the you know 50s and 60s we start to see you know barriers that are created for individuals to vote um we don't see the same severity you know new york is a Demo you know largely democratic state um but what we do see especially in you know communities that are you know overwhelmingly you know minority and i i, I hate to use that term but that is just the the yeah. operative term that's it yeah <laughs> Uh, but in in majority minority districts like the 68th, you start to see, you know, um, kind of a competition between groups. You know, we are a, a Latino majority district, but we also have a large majority, a, a large population of black voters that have always been here and that you know are just as much part of this community as the Latinos. We have a growing, you know, AAPI, you know, community that, you know, has been here, has lived here, has worked here. And a lot of times what you see is in order to consolidate power, these groups are pitted against each other. There's a lot of rhetoric to try to divide when in reality, we have a lot more in common than we do differently. If the only difference we have is our, the color of our skin, that is not a difference. 
you know, we're all sharing the same struggles. We're all, you know, fighting for better education, clean air, clean water, and access to food, access to healthcare. That's what we have in common. And that's really like the theme of my candidacy is that we're, there's more to unite us than to divide us. And I will not stand for any of this uh, suppression based on, you know, whatever racial lines you want to draw. I am not involved in that. I don't want to be involved in that. I want the best representation for this district. And I know that I am that person who can deliver that. And in line with that, I, I earlier you, you mentioned uh, in regards to some of our political leaders, but I, I got to honestly, honestly say, as I sit here and listen to you, you seem to be truly a genuine voice of the people. Um, and I know you're a very uh, humble guy. You kind of like, hey, no, I just want to serve. But um, I just want to say that because, you know, I'm looking at your campaign uh, flyer here from, I think this was the 18th, and it says, uh, don't be silenced by this silent election. So as you move forward, uh, and I'm sure you said for this community, uh, and again, particularly for that six day district, we have some listeners out there who are part of different boards who are really concerned uh, about some of the challenges that you have mentioned um, without even us getting to that uh, part as of yet. Um, as you continue to, on this campaign to June, are, are you gonna make your presence more uh, visible in those communities, uh, educating those communities, up, you know, and, and bringing them into uh, what's happening to ensure that whether they vote this way or, or that way, that they are aware of what's taking place in their community. And I think that's one of the, the main things that uh, uh, some people have expressed. You know, what will that role look like for you moving forward into June? Yeah, um, and that work's already begun. Um, I was already, you know, involved in, you know, with a lot of, you know, community groups um, working through the pandemic to make sure people were, you know, fed and were safe. Um, and that hasn't really changed since becoming a candidate. If anything, it's increased. So, you know, most days I'm out on the street as early as 6 or 7 a.m., you know, doing food distributions uh, in the district. Um, we've been doing also a lot of, you know, small business, uh, you know, canvassing, making sure that, you know, they understand that there are resources available to them and also listening to see what their issues are, because they're some of the primary um, employers in our, in our district. Um, and they're, you know, they're the lifeblood of, the, of this economy. So we need to make sure that they're being taken care of. I'm also reaching out to groups that have been traditionally forgotten about in this district. Um, I mentioned the AAPI community. We're doing outreach into that community. We're also doing outreach to, you know, the small uh, group of people who are homeowners, you know, single family homeowners. It's, it's a very small area in East Harlem that, you know, uh, have homeowners. They have concerns, they have issues. We're doing outreach to them because they've been left out of the political process um, and they're becoming more engaged. We're also talking to, you know, people, just people on the street you know, whether they're unhoused or they're, you know, working to, you know, maintain their housing. Um, it's it's unreal the amount of people that are just struggling to pay their rent. Um, and, you know, when you talk to them, they're not looking for a handout. They're looking for just a little bit of help um, and access to just a few resources to just make it a little bit easier. Um, and those are conversations that, you know, they're, they're difficult to have because you want to reach into your pocket and just take care of, of, of the issue in the now. But you know, but, it's larger, it's more systemic, it's much more yeah. clear than us just doing that. So it, yeah. exactly. So it sounds like really you're pushing forth a very aggressive uh, grassroots campaigns that's going to touch the very communities and lives of those individuals in the East Harlem uh, and assistiate district and it seems as if you put that at the forefront of empowering these communities just by in, in the, the, this quick uh, uh, share of what you just you, you just shared with us here. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know any other way of doing it. Um, you know, I'm not someone who comes from a political elite, you know, background. Uh, you know, my, my parents, uh, you, you asked this earlier, but you know, my parents were really politically involved in Puerto Rico. And, you know, when I was growing up there, 
all we knew how to do was organize our community and go out and march or go out and you know you know fight for whatever you know the issue was of the day and that's really the you know the, the background that i come from um i i love being on the street i love talking to people um sometimes a little too much uh you know so i have to temper the uh you know the amount of time that i that i spend but i can literally be out there and lose my voice in the middle of the day just talking to folks and listening to you know what their what their issues are and a lot of times they give me the solutions they tell me what they need mm -hmm. um and I, I think that's been missing in the political process not just in east harlem but across uh new york and across this country we need folks in office who will listen um and people are just you know they'd rather pontificate rather than you know listen so i i hope to to break that mold well, I think you're already breaking uh, that mold. And uh, I think just to jump to uh, another area in which you and I uh, discuss uh, on several occasions, and this has basically been in the news. So we, you know, we, we, we kind of are, are at that place uh, with our newly, newly elected mayor, uh, Eric Adams, as well as our newly elected uh, district attorney, uh, uh, Mr. Braggs, there has been some challenges in regards to old policies, uh, in regards to uh, anti-gang uh, units, uh, as well as the uh, new district attorney's determination not to prosecute to uh, low-level offenders. Uh, and I've noticed uh, on your public safety and criminal justice uh, uh, platform and your, your, your areas that how do you, how, where do you see your balance in that? Uh, particularly knowing that very communities that you and I are discussing have been historically targeted through uh, aggressive police uh, and, and, and uh, law enforcement practices. Uh, and now we're seemingly in this new space of, of social equity and equality and issuing, uh, setting forth uh, justice agendas. How do you see yourself uh, moving into a space like uh, City Hall, represent, I mean, in, in uh, in Albany. Albany. Yeah, in Albany, representing uh, th these populations, these issues uh, that are at the forefront of uh, uh, national conversations when we talk about gun violence, et cetera, et cetera. How, how does this play out for you? Yeah, so, you know, full disclosure, I am a former prosecutor. Um, so I spent, you know, two years at the Brooklyn DA's office. Um, and, you know, the reason I left was, you know, I went in and I had this conversation with you right before I remember uh, joining. Um, I went in with, you know, a desire to do good for my community. Um, I wanted to go in and work at a progressive office where, you know, we were going to stop criminalizing poverty and start focusing on, you know, the, 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 the real dangerous crime that exists. Um, you know, nothing against uh, the, the office, but there was a disconnect between what was being said and what was being actually done on the ground. Um, and, you know, it, it took a lot of time to kind of start to move those wheels. And that was frustrating to me because I wanted to really affect change. So I kind of shifted gears and got into policy work in order to ensure that the policies that were being created and policies that were being enacted were more equitable and we're, you know, going to actually lead to the results that we want. And the ultimate result is we do not want to criminalize poverty. We don't want to create a racist, systemic, criminal legal system that takes people like you and I, you know, and makes them more vulnerable to not only violent crime, but also being incarcerated for doing, you know, crimes that really, you know, anywhere else would not lead to those results. Mm -hmm. So when I look at, you know, a lot of the rhetoric that's coming out of the mayor's office, I, I see the struggles that, you know, uh, DA Alvin Bragg um, is, is going through, trying to make even small changes to the way things are done. You know, it, it reminds me of a lot of the frustrations that I saw within the, uh, the system. And it, and it just shows that, this is a system that needs to really open up. We need more transparency. We need to eliminate a lot of the barriers that exist, um, not only in holding, you know, unscrupulous and, you know, uh, bad actors accountable, and that's both on the, you know, the, the police side, 
you know, the prosecutor side and, you know, in some cases, rare cases, the defense side. You know, we need we need to be able to hold all parties accountable. Um, we also need to ensure that when you have issues that are mental health issues, when you have issues that are poverty issues, you're addressing the root cause. You know, it's it's unfortunate that we forget that these problems don't just appear out of the ether. You're a mental health professional. You understand that a lot of these issues are generational. Mm -hmm. You know, your mental health today may be part of a result from things that happened a generation ago that led to certain, you know, things that happened in your life that led to this, you know, to, to your current mental health state. We're not addressing those core issues um, and we're forgetting about it. All we're trying to do, uh, unfortunately, is from the top down is enforce, enforce, enforce. That will not lead to more safety. That will put more people in danger. Uh, I am not anti-police. You know, I, I have said this again and again. I believe that police have a role to play in public safety, but I want police focused on getting the guns off the street. I want police focused on, you know, protecting people and preventing violent crime. I don't need my police dealing with a person having a mental health crisis on 125th Street. We need actual mental health professionals who are civilianized and who have the resources to go in and take care of those problems. And so I'm a huge fan of that. Yeah, you also supported Daniel's Law. That was part of your campaign that you were a great uh, big supporter of Daniel's Law. And that was a yeah. bill that sought to establish that state and regional councils um, and regional response units for mental uh, health uh, emergencies. And that happened, actually, I'm kind of going over some of the notes of it. Uh, I was named after a black man in uh, Rochester who was experiencing a mental health crisis when he was killed by police officers uh, who responded uh, to this. So that became one of the ballot in one of those places for you that led yeah. you to support uh, uh, that Senate bill uh, for the passage of Daniel's law. Do you see that mm, happening? Because in the reason for me as a educator, a researcher, you know, I, I, I you know, I do the, the numbers uh, in regards to even right here in New in, in New York City with Rikers Island, that we know that we have 67% of those individuals that are entering our uh, criminal legal system uh, who suffer uh, from uh, 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 some type of mental health disorder. 80% are entering uh, the criminal justice with substance use disorder. And now we've determined that we're, we're finding that incarceration and the conditions or the lack of services of engagement that we have 82% that are exiting the same uh, facilities uh, uh, now with uh, compounded issues of substance, I mean, of, of uh, mental health um, issues. And, and I think that there's that point uh, for particularly our legislators and those who are, are running that, that these are at the forefront, particularly when we see that there has been a lack of investment uh, within our uh, justice system uh, to begin to uh, 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 provide services to these uh, individuals. And I, I think that the next question that most people ask, is that a failure on part of government when we talk about public safety? Are we failing the public by not investing that? Are we, how does that look for you? I mean, you, you said it better than I ever could. This is a failure of government. Um, you know, even the way we go about, you know, treating individuals who are facing um, you know, substance use disorder, um, we are failing them, even in the treatment that they're being provided. Um, the most common treatment, as you know, if someone has opioid use disorder or some other, um, you know, substance use disorder is methadone. That is the primary therapy that is offered. And, you know, methadone is not meant to be permanent. It's not a permanent solution. It is a, it's a Band-Aid. It's supposed to take someone from you know a full-blown addiction to a place where they can be more stable and be able to work on all the other issues that are affecting them that led to you know their their, their disorder but the way that a lot of the treatment facilities especially those in east harlem and by the way east harlem central harlem we are oversaturated we're carrying an unfair burden uh, for the rest of new york city with these treatment facilities um, and that's something that needs to be addressed at the state level. 
But what we're doing is we're, we're you know, forcing people into these treatments. They're getting their dosage, they're being left to, to their own devices, and there are no additional programs offered. And, the, and if there are, there aren't enough. We really need a holistic wraparound, you know, services. We need more mental health professionals really treating the root causes of what leads to addiction. We need workforce development. Um, you know, our friends at Exodus do a great job at this, but they need more resources and they need, you know, we need more uh, facilities to be able to offer the, the, this type of development. Um, and, you know, they're just, they're, there seems to be a, a disconnect and, and, and I really don't understand. We want safer streets, but we're unwilling to pay for them. We want people to have, you know, great results whenever they're dealing with, with, with issues, but we don't want to pay for them. But then we, we, we choose to pay for things that aren't working. And it's, it, you know, at some point you have to understand that you can't police your way out of this and you cannot continue to, you know, uh, rely on police to take care of every problem. That is not their job. Mm -hmm. They have a mandate, they have a job. There are other professionals that are better equipped to deal with most of these issues and get better results. We see it in the criminal legal system. We also see it in our education system. Our teachers are also expected to be guidance counselors, social workers, you know, psychologists, and also educate our children. We're not, you know, and the two issues are inextricably linked. Exactly. We're under-resourcing the schools, which is leading to, to, to uh, higher crime rates and it's leading to, to more, um, you know, uh, bad results. And at the same time, we're not, we're, not, we're not working with people and meeting them where they are and really giving them the resources they need to, you know, to work through it. And it's unfortunate. It is a failure of government. Exactly. And I think that even in the line with uh, when you just mentioned schools, that was a, another, you know, at overlooking, uh, oh God, overlooking your uh, agenda. You have a very, very aggressive agenda. And also that inc includes uh, solutions. Uh, you supported the Solutions Not Suspension Act, uh, which focuses on uh, that, that we're in, uh, I guess, harsh and ineffective school disciplinary practices. Uh, and this is always has been at the root of what we, deter we, we now term as the school to prison pipeline, mm -hmm. which you and I know that disproportionately uh, impacts com minority communities uh, and usually leads to uh, a trajectory that usually leads to our criminal uh, adult criminal justice system as well as juvenile justice system. Now, one of the things that I think uh, a few years ago, a lot of funding uh, that could have been uh, allocated into after school programs that could have established YMCAs that have, could have continued to uh, put personnel in some of our community centers. Is your goal, is, 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 particularly in regards to the Solutions Not Suspension Act, mm -hmm. is your uh, position to ensure that uh, we begin to invest fundings into community uh, activities, programs for our children in the community. When we talk about the shootings, they have nothing to do and we can talk about and complain about it. However, we're not bringing uh, any type of solutions. Is that one of your other, your, your objectives in this? Yeah, 100%. Um, you know, we need investment in things to do for, you know, for kids need something to do. Mm -hmm. um, I was blessed. It's like in any other community. You yeah, know, I, let, let me be honest about that. It, I mean, so they don't think that you're this guy who's come with some radical idea because we can go into other communities and they got archery, they got arts, they got the this program, just a robust. So I just had to say that. So you're, mm -hmm. and it's not something across the street. No, uh, I was lucky. You know, I was a scholarship kid. So I had to hop on a bus and go to a school that I got a scholarship to for high school luckiest break I ever got in my life. Why? Going there, I had access to art and music in school and I had access to athletics after school. Um, so I was, you know, when other when other stuff was going down, I was at practice. I was, you know, you know, working out, doing something. I had always had something to do as a teenager, which kept me from, you know, getting into trouble. Unfortunately, a lot of the kids I grew up with didn't have that same, you know, access. And, you know, it's no wonder why we're, we're thinking, well, what happened to this person versus that person? One had access to resources, one didn't. Um, when we look at just the 68th district, we, we border the, up, the Upper East Side. 
Upper East Side schools, Upper East Side programming is ridiculous. You talked about fencing. There is a fencing club right across the street from uh, one of my NYCHA developments. And it's not in my district. It's like they cut out that part, that part of it. It's not in my district, mm -hmm. but the NYCHA development is. You know, it, it's not that, you know, we don't have programs. There are a lot of programs that are available. It's just, they're not enough. And, you know, you, we can't just throw together you know, a program overnight. We need, you know, CBOs, community-based organizations, we need nonprofits to have the resources to really build that infrastructure. We need schools. You know, schools can can provide after-school programming, um, but they need funding. And the funding has to come from the federal, state, and local governments. And some of the funding's there, but it's not enough. You know, and then when we talk about, you know, um, eliminating suspensions, you know, Again, we, you and I, as you know, people of color, had a much higher chance of getting suspended for getting in trouble than folks who lived in more affluent Caucasian communities. Mm -hmm. Just the way it goes. You know, when we look at you know at those results, why don't we have a social worker, you know, or another mental health professional in every school who is working with students who who are developing you know, treatment plans to help them cope with whatever other issues are leading to these results. In most cases, kids are dealing with problems at home. They're dealing with, you know, societal pressures and they don't have the coping mechanisms to even articulate the language of what they're feeling. It just becomes anger. When we get frustrated and we don't feel like we're being listened to and we don't have any, any other outlet, and manifest into anger. And unfortunately, we don't have the tools to give these kids to get there. I am a big supporter. I am married to a social worker. You are a social worker. I want a social worker in every school. I, I would love a hundred social workers in every school because I think that that is like the ultimate way to really deal with a lot of these issues. We need to really invest in those resources and the money is there. We just need to like, shifted from programs that aren't working into programs that will work. Um, and we need to continuously reevaluate and re, you know, redraw it, ensure that we continue having, you know, gradual success. That is the only way I know how to do this. You know, uh, a few years ago with the past administration, uh, the Blasio administration, uh, uh, they set forth a, uh, the Thrive NYC uh, campaign that was $800 million. And as we know, there was a report that came from that from the uh, public advocates office uh, that showed that although we had the funding, the implementation did not take place. And a lot of what we're discussing uh, was funding to support uh, uh, a lot of these programs uh, in our communities. Um, and I do know from my understanding that Thrive NYC, uh, it, just, it, was, it was put together by a host of uh, nonprofits, advocates, uh, 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 social workers, uh, those individuals who are deeply uh, mental health providers, et cetera. Uh, and the idea is just what you said is that, okay, wait a minute, this is a great idea. We're gonna have to revisit it. And I'm, I'm saying all that uh, because as you kind of go into this new space, we already know that there's uh, a lot of uh, political uh, discourse uh, and kind of tension from one group. So are you willing uh, as a leader uh, for uh, uh, the assembly, particularly in Albany, uh, to work with uh, uh, various groups there to ensure that the support that uh, our communities and the community that you'll be representing uh, in the 68th district uh, are, are, are serviced? Yeah, absolutely. I am a firm believer of co-governance. And what do I mean by that is the power isn't mine. The power is being lent to me by the people who elected me. And my office will be open to anyone in who wants to work with anyone else in this district in order to in, ensure that we're getting the results. I want to have robust discussions on a continuous basis. I need to hear the feedback so that I can deliver it. Um, you know, and, and, and really have the data to support my positions. You know, uh, we have a lot of, you know, uh, community-based organizations, a lot of nonprofits who have great ideas. Mm -hmm. They need to be continuously re, you know, reevaluated. They need to be continuously 
recheck to make sure that the data supports the results. Um, you know, even our residents, our residents will tell me, you know, what's working, what's not. And I really need that feedback in order to be able to come up with, you know, better results. I, I'm a firm believer, good data, you know, equals good policy. So when we see a lot of these programs that just don't tend, you know, aren't really achieving the results, let's go back to the drawing board, let's get more information and let's redraw them. And I think that was the failure of Thrive mm -hmm. is that again, it was a top-down system. Um, and unfortunately, a lot of the solutions sounded great, but weren't practical and couldn't really be enacted in a way that was successful. I think that it really should be a bottom-up strategy where we're working with parents, we're working with educators, we're working, you know, with the grassroots in order to, you know, come up with those solutions that will work. Because what works in my district may not work in the neighboring district and vice versa. You have to take into account that certain plans won't work everywhere. And you have to tailor each plan to that community. And unfortunately, you know, that, that wasn't happening. Yeah, that, that I think uh, what, I think it was that one one size fits all approach began to try to implement that, and it, and it was utter yeah. utter failure. I didn't say you know it is what it is. Uh, yeah. That office really uh, unpacked that, um, and you know we we still have some time. So I, one of the other areas that you know that's at the forefront, and I, I'm, I'm looking at your your, your support of the. Uh, Clean Slate uh, in, in Y uh, Act, and uh, I'm, I'm really bringing that up now because, as you know, the uh, Hochul administration here uh, in the governor's office just recently uh, uh, signed to law the uh, legal, legalized marijuana uh, program uh, that will be taking place uh, here in New York State. Uh, also, a part of that has entail is kind of entwined with the social equity program that will provide. Uh, those individuals who have been disproportionately uh, arrested and targeted in regards to uh, marijuana, um, an opportunity to partake into uh, this uh, conversation. We recently had a uh, conference at New York University where uh, Lieutenant uh, Governor Brian Benjamin uh, uh, came and he shared on some of the work that's being done uh, in those communities. Do you see um, the Clean Slate uh, New York Act aligning with that? And what are your views on how do we empower people who have been targeted and arrested for our marijuana usage or possession of marijuana? Now that it's legalized, we're going to have this, this, this billion dollar windfall uh, that's going to be happening. How do we empower those communities uh, through the social equity program for jobs, trainings, uh, licensing, et cetera, et cetera? How, how does that look from, because this is definitely going to happen at the state level. Um, they've already have a committee, so you'll be right in the thick of that. And those individuals, and the reason it's really uh, pertinent for me uh, is that a great majority of those individuals come right from the district uh, you'll be representing uh, there in Albany. Yeah, no, um, I completely, you know, am aligned with, you know, those values. Um, the reality is that, you know, unfortunately, because our communities have been, you know, over-policed, over-incarcerated, um, those, you know, the results of that don't just go away. Like, you know, if you're arrested, you're convicted and, you know, you, you serve time, it's a yoke that you carry around your neck the rest of your life. And it prevents you from getting housing, prevents you from getting a job. You know, I was a big, uh, you know, a, a big advocate at the city council with, you know, ban the box, you know, because the reality is I don't care if you, you know, serve time. Are you able to come to work? Are you able to do X, Y, Z? That that should be the, you know, the primary focus. Um, so any opportunity we have to, you know, we obviously can't give people back their time and we can't change the past. But any opportunity we have to eliminate the barriers to economic prosperity and to, you know, having the ability to live a productive life, then we should seek, you know, at, at all, you know, at all costs, we should seek those uh, results. You know, with the marijuana legislation, that money has to, absolutely has to be filtered back into the communities that have been affected by the Rockefeller drug laws and other you know, anti-drug, um, you know, legislation that was really, you know, a euphemism for anti-black and anti-brown. 
mm -hmm. uh, because the reality is that, you know, our communities were oversaturated with, you know, with drugs, over-policed, and then, you know, unfortunately people, you know, served a lot of time for, you know, crimes that if you committed it a few blocks down, you weren't going to get arrested for. So that money has to filter back in. And the reality is that, you know, when we talk about equity, we have to eliminate uh, something that's called vertical integration. Um, and what vertical integration is, is, you know, similar to what they do in other states where, you know, one company controls the grow, the, the growing of the marijuana, the harvesting, the distribution, and then they own the storefronts. Got to get rid of that. This has to be something where, you know, people from our community have an access to every step of the process. You may not want to be a storefront, you know, uh, a marijuana storefront. Great. But you know what? You want to work in distributing or you want to work in, you know, and, and run a, a you know, a, a co-op farm. You do something to get into that, that economy. You should have that access to. But if we allow vertical integration, that's just going to cut everyone out and it's going to make it even harder for people to, to get in. The second thing is for the people who do want to do the storefronts, we need low interest, damn near zero interest loans um, to make sure that people who don't have a million dollars laying you know, in their bank account can also get into the space. Commercial rents in New York for businesses are among the highest in the country. Mm -hmm. We need to do more to ensure that it is people in our community who are the business owners who have all the resources available to them to be able to put for, you know put forth a business and when we do that the money stays here and the money continues to be reinvested here this stuff will be taxed incredibly and that money has to filter back into this community i don't want to give the people in billionaires row another source of income that continues to rob resources away from our community it starts here it stays here and you know that is something that I will like advocate until my, my, my head falls off because I really do believe in the power of, you know, investing in your, in your communities and that money pays itself forward tenfold in benefits. So and, and, I'm with you. Yeah. And I, and I, and I really have to say when we particularly, you know, when we think about the impact of poverty, how, uh, 40% of this uh, state revenue could, I mean, we're really talking about eradicating poverty, creating real opportunity. This is truly, uh, I believe, a starting point uh, that, you know, what, that I think that we missed uh, during, during the New Deal era. We missed in a lot of spaces. And I think that even with prohibition, uh, I think that right now uh, in this new, what we call the new prohibition, that this will pr truly uh, uh, provide that opportunity. And that's really one of the economic uh, avenues uh, that we we believe that could be beneficial uh, to something that could change the scope in the face of uh, uh, minority communities, particularly in relation uh, to poverty. We're coming up on the uh, our hour here with my good friend, uh, Wilfredo Lopez, as you guys have been hearing, uh, he has a, 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 a tremendous uh, agenda on the representation uh, for the 68th district there uh, in Albany. Um, Wilfredo will be in our communities. Uh, he will be reaching out to our uh, constituents in those communities, as well as those various community boards. And I think I had a, one of my uh, friends from there uh, was really open to hopefully uh, Wilfredo that you're able to come in and share your views and representation ideas for the uh, Sister District with that uh, community board. And we're hoping that that stays on the table that you will find, you know, I know you have a busy schedule uh, for you to be able to engage with uh, that group and, and to ensure uh, them and that community. Um, and I think also what they have is a community, they want to develop a community townhouse uh, mm -hmm. uh, really here. Uh, from you, as I said, I'm, I'm, I'm your, <laughs> I'm, I'm your advocate. I, I, I'm your cheerleader over on this end, straight like that. Here, all uh, it's coffee time. We, we believe that. Uh, so, one of the, like, I guess, one of the things I just want to say is there anything else that you, you want to share with our, uh, and I, oh, I think yes, yeah, someone definitely wanted us to kind of have because this is also one of the, the policies that you supported. Uh, was the fair and timely parole. As you know, uh, probation, uh, the, uh, 
what was it? Uh, probation reform was just recently uh, passed, the Less Is More Act passed in New York State, which would eliminate uh, 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 technical violations for individuals who have been going back to prison. Um, that legislation was led by the Katal Center. I had the opportunity to work with them. That legislation passed, uh, which as you may know, accounted for I think 38% of the general population of those individuals returning uh, to prison uh, here in New York State. And now we get to set forth a new front. Is there any way with the passage of that legislation that you feel that we can uh, expand on it to ensure that these returning citizens or those individuals uh, that are or that may come home on probation, well, I shouldn't say may, uh, because as uh, you know, the uh, federal government has just began the implementation of the First Step Act, where a lot of those federal uh, inmates who were sentenced under the draconian drug laws of the so-called war on drugs, uh, and also now becoming beneficiaries of the First Step Act are gonna be returning home. And a lot of those individuals are coming here to New York uh, State. Uh, and how do you feel at, at this juncture, we can better prepare as a state uh, organizations to, to assist this population as they're returning uh, back home to our communities? Yeah, so, you know, one of the easiest things we could do is just guarantee that when they come home, they have access to their vital records which is one of the hardest things for someone coming home from, you know, any any level of incarceration to get. You know, I, I know folks, I've worked with folks who, you know, have been formerly incarcerated, who have been out for months, sometimes years, and they can't get their birth certificate or they can't get like an ID or any other, you know, sort of vital record because it's still being held by you know, or, you know, there, there's some issues with with uh, with folks getting access to that. And that prevents them from being able to move on and actually, you know, take care of what they need to take care of mm -hmm. in order to get a job or do anything. You know, as well as I do, that those first few days back home. The most critical. The most critical. We need to get people stabilized, whether that be housing, whether that be, you know, uh, some sort of, you know, temporary employment, something for them to be able to get stable and then start building. All too often, we just, you know, send people out into the fray and, you know, Tom, well, it's been great, take care of yourself. And if they don't have a family to go home to, which in a lot of cases, that is, the, the you know, uh, an issue. Mm -hmm. What what happens? They get rolled into our, you know, our, our shelter system or they end up on the street, they end up reoffending on another poverty driven, you know, uh, a broken you know. window law that we get exactly. in some low level offense and they're right back in this through that same ecosystem from the incarceration back to the streets to some uh, shelter, then back to prison. So that's that. that, that, that. It, it, it's an unfortunate cycle um, and we need to break it. So, you know, in, in speaking with, with, with folks who are doing this work, you know, they tell me like, look, if I just had access to my driver's, to be able to get a driver's license, that would be incredibly helpful. Or if I had just had access to, you know, housing, that would be incredibly helpful. You know, we can't keep relying on, you know, the nonprofits that are doing the work to do everything because they're under-resourced. Like the Fortune Society can only do so much. You know, they only have enough resources to do so much. And other organizations like that can only do so much. This should really be a state priority. You know, if people have done, you know, they, they, they've done their time, they're coming back into society, we should welcome them with open arms and give them the tools they need to be able to continue their lives and not just be another statistic in the system. When it comes to fair parole, and, you know, when we're talking about our elderly, you know, um, you know incarcerated community, studies show overwhelmingly that folks that are over the age of 50 tend to reoffend at a such a low level it is like the date the data doesn't even matter um we need to be compassionate we need to be you know realistic in the fact that if someone has done a significant amount of time they have health issues they're already you know uh, elderly we should really be bringing them home and allow them to continue their lives with dignity um, and allow them to enjoy, you know, however much time they have on this earth. Um, you know, and, and that is something that is, that, that is just pure human compassion 
that unfortunately our legal system lacks. Well, so, I think that uh, the legal system has always been based on more of a punitive approach than a humane approach. So if we can continue to practice in that vein, we will kind of, you know, kind of continue to see these outcomes. And the fact that even you mentioned the elderly uh, population is another staggering number, not only just in the, the idea of the, the, you know, the humanity of it, um, research has shown as a person, the longer the individual stays incarcerated, you age out of a criminal thinking and criminal behavior. Uh, sometimes we approach this population as if these are the same men and women who we locked away in cages over yeah. 50 years ago. And now this is a 70 year old man or woman in front of us. And we, we, we kind of kind of have that same approach. So uh, I think that it's going to be important that uh, as we continue to have these conversations and the representation of individuals such as yourself that um, we believe that uh, you will make these uh, uh, issues and keep these issues at the forefront and effectuate change. And in, in that saying that I was thinking about the organizations, particularly when you said individuals who find it difficult to access uh, various documents and some of the most uh, important documents, what we call fundamentals, like the social security, et cetera, card, uh, all those things. Um, and the work that they're doing over at Exodus Transitional uh, Community and some, you know, I've spoken with some people there. Uh, they love you there, uh, the work that you're doing and your ability to listen to them. And that's a population, uh, I think, Julio, they're dealing directly with this population that is coming home. They're dealing, you know, kind of taking off this, this, this burden from our city, taking on this. So I think that this it's important uh, that we support organizations uh, that are doing some of the hard work uh, on behalf of our communities and our societies to ensure that uh, what's happening there and servicing this population with uh, necessary work that they need. And not just Exodus, Exodus is one of many, but I'm so familiar with the, uh, the work Julio is doing there in, 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 in an effort to effectuate change uh, in the lives of uh, those men and women, as well as our uh, communities. So I, I wanna say, um, uh, Wilfredo, this has been great. We want to thank you so much for taking the time to uh, come on. It's coffee time on Spotify to share with us your uh, views, your, your your outlook and your campaign. So I, I want to do this now. How can we ensure that the our, our listeners and those individuals in the 68 district are able to contact you? Yeah, so really easy. So you can, you know, go to our website, campaign website, which is lopez4ny.com. Um, there you will have, you know, access to our social media. Um, there's also my emails on there. So you can literally email me directly. Um, I am, you know, a person who will respond to every email that I get, uh, every message that we receive, um, you know, and it's also important to know what's coming down the pipe. So March 1st, you know, petitioning starts. So if you see me out holding a, 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 a clipboard asking for your signature and support, you know, and you live in the 68th district and you're a registered Democrat, please sign. Uh, we'll have our volunteers out there. And then the most important piece is remembering that early vote starts on June 18th, runs through the 26th and election day is on June 28th. It's a very important election. Um, so I really hope I can earn your support. Um, and again, Terrence, thank you so much for having me on here. I, I am a huge fan of yours, like I said from the beginning, both from a, per, a, a personal and professional standpoint. I look up to you and I'm just honored to share the space with you today. Well, I'm honored that you're here. And we also want to give another shout out on uh, February 26th. Again, I said this earlier, we will be hosting um, our social justice network, uh, uh, network and black history uh, event at Exodus. So Wilfredo, we would love to see you. If you have the opportunity, uh, you and your wife are able to come by, say yeah. hello to the constituents. I'm getting tongue tied this morning. Um, and meeting some of those organizations that are gonna be a part of there will be over 30 organizations. So I think that'd be a great opportunity. Also, I wanna share with our listening audience, I shared with this to you in the past, but this happened like in the past week, uh, Mr. Lopez will also be a part of our reading and discussion uh, that will be taking place at uh, Exodus again um, on a reading of the uh, 
of the of, of the fire next time of James Baldwin that's being hosted uh, by Humanities. Uh, we want to thank you for also taking the opportunity to come out um, to share with us, uh, share your space, and share your time with us as well with Fredo. So um, until the next time, this has been it's coffee time on Spotify. We want to thank you for joining us here today. Uh, and we look forward to seeing you on our next broadcast today. We had in the studio, Mr. Wilfredo Lopez running for the assembly office in the 68th district. Please get involved in what's taking place in your, in that community. And I am sure uh, through Mr. Lopez's office, you will be hearing about this and we need your support and we need your engagement. And we're definitely gonna need your vote to effectuate change in our community. This is Professor Coffee. See you next time.